Hey, Bucketheads, this is Bird, and we've got a special one-on-one edition of the podcast today. As you know, we're less than three weeks until the start of the college basketball season, and we've been dropping conference previews on cbb-dfs.com over the past few weeks to build some of that foundational knowledge for the season. Uh, But today we really want to take a deeper dive into the Big 12 and specifically Kansas Jayhawks. And so I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Jesse Newell. And and Jesse works for the Kansas City Star as the Kansas Jayhawks basketball and and football beat writer. Jesse, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, doing good. Thanks for having me on here. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate you joining us today. And and Jesse, you've been covering the Jayhawks for roughly 10 years now. Uh, What's it like to cover, you know, a a true blue blood college basketball program on a daily basis? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, interesting and not only interesting in terms of it being a successful program but obviously with what's happened with the program lately a lot of stuff has happened off the court where (laughs) you know you have to become sort of a specialist in other things that you didn't know you were signing up for in journalism school I remember when when Les Miles was before he got hired and we were trying to do flight tracker stuff I was learning all all these things about aviation and being a pilot and um, (laughs) now obviously with some of the notice of allegations that have come out against Kansas basketball I'm kind of moving toward the lawyer side of things and reading legal documents. So uh, you never know where the job is going to take you. But uh, yeah, especially lately with Kansas basketball, there never seems to be a dull day. (laughs) Well, yeah, you definitely exactly every day is going to be a little bit different when you're covering a big school like that. And and fortunately for, for both of us, we won't be talking about Snoop Dogg or about stripper poles or, or anything <laughs> like that on the on the podcast. Uh, we're going to focus on, a little bit on DFS. And I know, you know, for us, for um, for our, our team here at, at CBB uh, underscore DFS, we utilize those those analytics every day, like Ken Palm and things like that for DFS to try to find an edge. And I know basketball analytics is a, is a passion of yours as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you like the, the analytics side of basketball so much and and what value you think that provides your readers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, I think I was a little bit preconditioned to it. I was, I'm the son of a math teacher. So uh, I was the kind of the nerdy <laughs> kid growing up that won the- You had no you choice. Know, exactly. On, on the weekends, I was going to math competitions and winning ribbons for that. So uh, <laughs> I had no choice of it to be involved with the numbers. And honestly, I, I think so much of this is just timing where um, I started covering the beat, like you said, about 10 years ago when I got out of college. And that's really when some of these things started to bubble up and more of the analytics became a part of the game. You know, Moneyball was uh, just before that. And, you know, college basketball, and as we know, basketball doesn't have um, the depth of statistics and advanced statistics as a sport like baseball does, which is so individualized. Um, college basketball, you know, is starting to filter down and people are starting to realize, hey, uh, there are some things that we can glean from this that might we might not have known in previous times. And I just think for me, it, it helps out so much to, to take out the subjectivity and try to become more objective um, with what's going on there. And uh, I know a lot of people get angry at me for my vote in the AP poll because I use so many <laughs> of the numbers, whether it's Sagarin or Bart Torvik or Ken Pomeroy. But uh, like I said, I, I for me, what people usually want me to do is say, hey, uh, why don't you watch every single team in the top 25? And it's like, that's not realistic. And even if it was, that would be very prone to bias. And so I think what the numbers and the advanced analytics allow us to do is to kind of take some of that bias out of it and say, hey, there are these computer programs and there are these really smart people out there that are allowing us to look at every possession of every game and do so in a very uh, ma- in a manner that is more simple to do than what our brains can really comprehend. And so any opportunity I can take to look at some of these numbers and figure out what the best ones are, what the most reliable ones are, uh, I'm going to try to bring that to readers and try to bring about a different level of knowledge that maybe that they can't get elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And, and I agree, the uh, fandom bias sometimes can take over, you know, in, in DFS, if I may... For example, if I'm an Illinois fan, I may want to try to play a bunch of players from Illinois and 
and, and you know, really that, that that may not make sense, right? You really want to trust the numbers and you want to trust the matchups, and, and instead of going with uh, with your loyalty or who may be on uh, who may be on your cap. I I also think, and and this is sort of a a worldview change, and I'm not sure a lot of people are there, but I think I got there the more that I looked at this stuff. Is that I think a lot of us look at a sporting event and they, you know, okay, Kansas is playing Duke, you know, in the Champions Classic. And let's say Kansas wins by 15. The thought there is that Kansas is 15 points better than Duke. End of story, (laughs) end of discussion. And that's just not reality. I mean, you have to look at this as a spectrum to say, hey, this could have been an outlier event. And head-to-head events or head-to-head um, win-loss records are always are not really reliable. I mean, stuff happens. Sometimes the ball bounces off your foot and goes out of bounds. Sometimes a guy that is a leading player on your team is sick. I mean, uh, weird stuff happens. Uh, maybe people didn't get sleep well the night before. Mm-hmm. But basically, you look at this as a spectrum and say, hey, um, you do the best with what you have before you go with it, and then you trust those numbers. You trust what's there. And it's not going to be right exactly 100% of the time, but uh, if you look at it as a spectrum and you're more right more often than you're wrong, uh, again, I think that's where you get the edge when it's coaching. I think that's where you get the edge if you're a staff member. I think that's probably where you get the edge when you're in DFS because a lot of those small things can add up into profits, and it's basically trusting that and not going off of gut instinct, but knowing, hey, if I have this slight edge here and have faith in the process and knowing that over time I will win, uh, then that's really when you can gain an edge. Yeah, like JoJo says, we got to trust the process, right? There you go. Yeah, Joel Embiid <laughs> uh, made it very famous at Kansas. So uh, he was probably talking about DFS when he was going with it. He, he probably was. And and it's funny you bring that up. I've, I've heard Fran Fraschilla talk before about, you know, over a 30-game season, you're going to have five games where you play amazing. You're going to have five games where you stink. And those 20 games in the middle is kind of who you are. And I think that's kind of what you talk about, you know, over the course of the season, the, the stats don't lie. Yeah, and Bill Soff has said that a lot, too. He's, he always believes, he always goes 10, 10, and 10, but he says, what you learn about your team is how many of those games you win in those 10 games where you don't play well, and that's why he right. values toughness and 50-50 balls. And again, maybe that's a part of this where Kansas is wins more close games than you would think, and you can go back into officiating, and you go back into Allen Fieldhouse factor, you can go back into a lot of things. Bill Self's late game coaching, uh, there could be a lot of factors with that, but um, that is part of when you're looking at this from a big picture perspective where you're saying, hey, what are the factors that are going into this and what can we kind of use to our advantage to to know about this knowledge-wise because, um, yeah, w- there are studies out there. There are people learning more about basketball and college basketball every single day. So the more of that we can take in, the more we can understand about this game and try to predict what's going to happen in the future, which obviously when you have that, then knowledge can equal power. That's exactly right. And, and one other thing, you know, for you personally, I know I, I've read your work for a long time. Uh, will you be doing the the quick scouts again this year where you kind of give that game overview and, uh, you know, some players that you think are going to play well for Kansas, a, a quick overview of the other team? Is that something that we can look forward to this season? Yeah, it's been a popular feature. Um, the funny part about that is that Every once in a while, randomly on Twitter, I'll get a follower like somebody is just basically Vegas handicapper or I live in Vegas and bet on sports teams. And I figure that most of those people uh, are doing it for the quick scout, which for those unfamiliar, it's basically I kind of go into a breakdown of the game, strength and weaknesses of KU's opponent, um, do a, a prediction on a player for KU that um, is going to thrive against this particular matchup, which, again, might serve people well in a DFS sort of purpose. And then also given against the spread projection or, or prediction for the game. And uh, I think it picked up a lot of steam when I know the game went to overtime a couple of years ago against Duke, but I predicted the exact score of the Kansas Duke game uh, in that one. So a lot of people kind of picked up on that one and uh, started using some Nostradamus stuff. But uh, yeah, if you look at the numbers, I've been doing it over five seasons and against the spread, I'm 99, 76 and three. And so 
if I was in Vegas, I think that would get me a 900 number, but I also don't try to uh, promote that too much just because uh, the moment you start talking about how great your record against the spread is, that's the moment where uh, you start the season like 6-22 and 22 and lose people a bunch of money. So that is out there for folks, but I feel like I do sort of have a little bit of a grasp of Kansas just because I've been around the program so long. I know Bill Self and sort of how his teams usually fare and kind of how he um, operates against certain teams. And so I think there's at least a little bit of something there where uh, the numbers over time have shown that I'm able to uh, at least more than half the time kind of look at these matchups and and try to determine if KU has a good chance of winning or not. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm glad that's coming back. And, and that's the reason I brought it up. I think from, from a DFS perspective, you know, anytime Kansas is on the slate, that's going to be a great article to read, give you a little bit of extra insight that you may not be thinking about. And like you said, from a betting perspective, too, those are obviously anytime I think you're over 55 percent, you're a, you're a winning better. So that's really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the well, I mean, obviously, it's it's not right for me to uh, bet on any game that I'm covering. That would be kind of a right. conflict of interest thing. Right. Um, so that never happens. But. Yeah, if you if I'd have known five years ago that I would get fifty six point six percent of these right, then uh, you know I've got buddies in Vegas. I could have just said, hey, 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 you know, <laughs> I'm not telling you to do anything here, but you might want to do this, you know, just yeah. just 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 telling you that you, you might be able to go afford another condo or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like you said, knowledge is power, and, and and you're showing you're showing some power here. I love it. Hey, let's uh, let's shift to the to the Big Twelve a little bit, and and you said. Uh, you're you're a voter on the on the AP top 25, and I, I assume that's going to come out here sometime soon. Have you have you done your ballot yet, or is that still in pro- in progress? I have done my ballot. Uh, I sent it in a couple days ago. The AP poll is going to come out on Monday. Okay, is that is it secret knowledge at this point? Can we ask if there's any any Big 12 teams that are on the top 25 of your of your list? Uh, yeah, I, I can try to pull it up here really quickly. Um, obviously, Kansas is the team that most people are going to. Uh, look at, and that's the top team I had in the Big 12. I think I had, I'll probably have them a little bit lower than everybody else does. I mean, right now I'm one of 65 voters, and uh, I don't know how everybody else votes. So you know, when that poll comes out, it's a surprise to me as much as it's a surprise to everybody else. So I'm actually going here, and it's looking like it's not going to allow me to look at what I said into them with the preseason poll. So I guess I'll have to be a surprise to everybody coming out. I do know that I had uh, Baylor and Texas Tech both ranked from the Big 12 as well, somewhere in the 17 to 18 range, yeah. uh, kind of lumped in there together. Uh, those are two other teams I think that most people are kind of assuming. Texas Tech, obviously, off the national championship appearance last year, and Baylor returning Tristan Clark from injury and obviously having the success that they've had over time and uh, returning most of their players. Those are the other two Big 12 teams there. But um, honestly, like I told you before, a lot of this stuff that I do with my AP poll is based off of analytics and some of the best data I have. So uh, I'm not too proud to admit that uh, when this thing first comes out and when I start to look over these things, I, I send a nice private message over to my friend Ken Pomeroy to see if he has sort of a list of what his top 30 are going to be. And then uh, I make sort of a spreadsheet of my own to, to figure out and, and use some of these numbers that we have that are out there to try to to uh, give myself a, a good informed opinion when they, this preseason poll comes out. So, for example, like I know that uh, where the computers and humans are sort of disagreeing right now, a couple teams, uh, Purdue, I have ranked pretty high. I know Ken Pomeroy his numbers and Bart Torvik's like them and a lot of the human polls uh, don't have them as high, but obviously I've had a very efficient offense under Matt Painter the last few years and they've faced a very difficult Big Ten schedule where they've had a lot more losses than maybe what you expect, but some of that is the result of the schedule. And then also teams like Memphis and Arizona and Oregon uh, are sort of the opposite. A lot of human people love them, especially Memphis with a lot of the talent they brought in the offseason where uh, the advanced analytics 
you know, polls out there are a little bit more skeptical to say, hey, how all this is all of this going to come together and mesh on the court together? Maybe some examples in the past have shown that you just throw a bunch of talent together and it doesn't always work out perfectly, at least not at the start of the year. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, a, a Coach K or a Coach Cal has a proven record of, of working with those freshmen. But, you know, I, I know Penny Hardaway has got the NBA experience, but can he handle that many egos in the locker room and, and make it work. It'll be really interesting to see from a, from a Memphis perspective. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, I saw like even CBS sports, I think Gary Parish had them up at seventh uh, as high as that. And so, yeah, I mean, I, and, and, and listen, I, I can make an argument for it just because all the talent that they added this off season, you, you throw all those guys together and you say, well, how could they not be good? And maybe by the end of the year, they will be that good. And, you know, we can even debate on that. Like, Hey, are we, are we trying to project what the, um, selection committee is going to have at the end of the year. Is that what a preseason poll is? Or are we talking about teams as they are in their current form right now in mid-October? I mean, even that would be a different discussion. So yeah, uh, yeah diff- a lot of different ways to do this. And that's sort of what makes it challenging, but also uh, gets a lot of disagreement, and a lot of discussion going on, at least when it comes to the AP poll. So that's something that uh, I definitely deal with on a, on, a, on a daily and weekly basis when it comes to Twitter. Yeah, yeah, there's the highs and lows of, of being a, an AP voter, I'm sure. So that's exciting, though. And, you know, back to the Big 12, I, I think that's kind of the consensus that Kansas is that tier one and and maybe Baylor and Texas Tech are, are maybe a slot below in tier two. And, and then after that, it, it's kind of the Wild West. Uh, you know, I, personally, um, I, I like West Virginia. I think they're going to really rebound this year, um, have, a, have a much better season under Huggins. I think Oklahoma State's going to be pretty solid. But how do you see the uh, that that middle of the Big 12 playing out? I, I think you're exactly right. I think it's sort of difficult to predict at this point. You know, I, the coaches poll just came out, and then obviously uh, I just saw C.J. Moore, uh, a good friend I had from the Athletic. He did sort of a a media poll of it, and and he posted it today. And so uh, it does seem sort of like tears almost here, where you're saying, okay, Kansas is kind of a tier itself. Looks like Baylor, Texas Tech. However, you have those two, three. Usually Baylor two is next. TCU pretty clearly 10th, I think, Yep. you know, based off what we've seen so far, but um, four through nine, you were talking pretty mixed. And, you know, I would probably, if it was me, start with Texas. I feel like I'm always higher on Texas than most people. Um, but you look at what they added in the offseason um, with uh, Luke Yadlich. I don't want to mispronounce his name, but sort of the defensive guru at Michigan. And those are sorts of the wildcard factors that it's difficult to, to, to know exactly how that's going to factor into a team. But um, we know Shaka Smart. Obviously, he needs to produce at Texas, and they have a lot of the resources to be able to do that. But to kind of imp- be able to implement a completely different defensive philosophy that served Michigan so well, um, I, I'm interested to see how that turns out for Texas. And like I said, I feel like I'm always just so high on them because I do think um, yeah, I'm probably the highest guy out there on Shaka just because I've you know seen success he's had in the past and feel like he's um, at least a good motivator of players and seems to be a player's coach in that regard, even though he hasn't had success yet. So uh, you can start there. But yeah, you go down the line. I mean, you can make arguments for a lot of these teams. Iowa State obviously has had good success under Prome. Oklahoma State is returning basically their entire roster and a couple of sharpshooters out on there on the perimeter. Um, Oklahoma, when have they been bad under Lon Kruger? I mean, it just doesn't right. usually happen. And then, uh, yeah, back to West Virginia, you know, they're bringing in a couple of good players. And Bob Huggins, usually he's not a guy you can keep down for very long, even though they had sort of an interesting year last year with some departures midseason. So, uh, and in K-State, uh, you know, you can't keep them out. I mean, they won the Big 12 last year. And uh, obviously Bruce Weber is starting to, it seems like, get better talent into the, to the 
program when it comes to recruiting, and that might even pick up a little bit more next year. So, yeah, I, I think you look four through nine. I think a lot of people are sort of scratching their heads there and saying this is sort of a small margin for error, and maybe some of these close games in January and February are going to determine that order. But um, as far as those years go, I think, yeah, Kansas at one, Baylor, Texas Tech, two, three, TCU at 10, and then in the middle there, I think you can make arguments for a lot of them. I'd probably put Texas above just kind of uh, on my personal preferences, and we talk about biases, maybe my own bias from from kind of following college basketball and seeing maybe what is potentially there for Texas uh, defensively this year. But uh, yeah, I could definitely see a lot of people making arguments for different teams there. Yeah, I, I like that. And yeah, they, they certainly didn't bring Shaka in to win NIT championships. It's time for him to not only make the NCAA tournament, but but get some wins there too. Yeah, and, and, and we know that. And uh, not to mention, uh, we'll see. It's it's going to be early, so this isn't going to be fully implemented too. But uh, Texas stole Kansas basketball's strength coach too, and Andrea Hootie. Oh, I know. So that'll be it. That'll be another storyline to kind of follow throughout this year. And obviously she's had a lot of success in the past uh, with developing NBA players and um, also preventing some injuries. So we'll see if uh, that direction helps. Not that Texas has ever had bad strength and conditioning coaches, but uh, we'll see if taking Kansas is, uh, is able to help them out in the future too. Yeah. Hudy is kind of a, a living legend for, for KU fans and you know, those senior speeches, it's pretty much, you can chalk it up. The first thing they're going to talk about is, is Andrea Hudy and all the things that she's done to, help prepare them for the season and, and, and beyond. So she will be yeah, one of those kind of uh, uh, low profile uh, things for Kansas that they'll have to deal with this year. Yeah, we'll see how it turns out. And like I said, just seeing her in Burnt Orange is sort of a weird shock factor for people around here because uh, Andrew here was obviously here for uh, basically every year for Bill Self's tenure. I think she got hired right after Bill Self was. So uh, to see her in a different colored jersey in the Big 12 is, uh, or a different color shirt in the Big 12 is definitely something different. Yeah, it, it's definitely sad, and and you know just Kansas in, in general. So uh, let's let's jump in on on Kansas specifically this year, and there's going to be a lot of change overall there too. You know, so last year uh, the offense really ran through Dietrich Lawson. He had what roughly a 30% usage last year. Uh, LeGerald Vick is gone. Quentin Grimes is gone. So from a DFS perspective, there's there's a ton of opportunity there. Um, in, in my mind, you, you've got Devin Dotson starting at point guard, and and really no one behind him. So I see him playing the lion's share of minutes and, and, and probably picking up a lot of that usage. Uh, what are your thoughts on Dotson going into this season? Yeah, KU is an interesting team. If you look, uh, CBS Sports just released their top three All-American teams, and there was only one team that had two players uh, make the top three teams, and that was Kansas. And so, yeah, you start with Devon Dotson, and you start with Yudoka Azubuki, and you kind of can split hairs there whether – you think one or the other is going to be the preseason Big 12 player of the year, but I think those two are going to sweep most every single one uh, when you look at whether it's a vote of the media or a, a vote of the coaches. And the coaches uh, just released that they picked Yudoka Azubuki. Not too big of a surprise because he presents kind of the uh, challenging matchup that maybe those sorts of coaches don't have to face when they're looking at other teams. But when it comes to Dotson, um, I would say, and especially from like a DFS perspective, for him, it's going to be a very high floor. And the reason yeah. I would say that is because um, we've seen in the past for Bill Self and the tendency he has with his point guards is um, like De Devontae Graham. There was a section during his senior year where he played all 40 minutes or 40 plus minutes in like nine straight Big 12 games. And for Frank Mason the year before that, like he was not coming off the court no matter what. I remember the double overtime or was it triple overtime Oklahoma game where he played, you know, whatever it was 53 or 55 minutes refused to come off the court. And Bill Self was fine with having it happen. So Bill Self, when he trusts his point guard, he leaves them on the court. And with KU losing Isaac McBride here late to a transfer, he was kind of projected to be the team's backup point guard. 
KU doesn't have many options behind Devon Dotson. I mean, you're looking at Ochai Abashi can maybe handle it if, if you have to have him do it. Most likely it's probably Marcus Garrett, uh, who can play the one through four positions for Kansas. And again, he's not a natural point guard at six foot five. So um, for Dotson, he's a guy that should have a very high floor when it comes to production on a given night because he's just not coming off the floor. And that should be the case with early opponents, and it should be the case definitely with competitive ones like we talked about the KU Duke game. So um, when you're talking about a guy who has uh, – he should have a decently high ceiling as well because he's a guy that can score, should be – you know, he didn't have a great three-point shot last year but could penetrate, great in transition, um, good free-throw shooter, um, didn't shoot a lot of threes but tried to work on that in the offseason – uh, his assists are okay, uh, but you know a, a guy that, if nothing else, you can assume on a nightly basis, no matter the opponent, it's gonna be 35 minutes to 39 minutes. Uh, you can almost just mark that down with him. And I guess we might as well talk about Yudoka a little bit here. Um, that's sort of I think if you're chasing the ceiling, just because Yudoka has battled some injuries um, in the past few years. He has lost 40 pounds over this offseason, so he looks like a different player because he is going to be a different player. He came to KU's campus around 300. Now he's somewhere in the 265 to 270 range. Um, but he is a guy, KU has a bunch of front court depth. You know, they have David McCormick. They have Sylvia DeSosa. They have Jalen Wilson that they can play at the four position too. So for Udoka, if you're projecting minutes, I mean, he could be a beast getting rebounds and scoring and dunking, all those sorts of things. And yet at the same time, you could look at him and say, uh, if you're playing a team that isn't very good, he could play 20 minutes very easily, or he could get two fouls early and play 23 minutes, that sort of thing. So uh, I think with Dotson, you're getting a more reliable guy on a nightly basis. Uh, with Yudoka, you could get a monster performance, especially against smaller teams that can be overwhelmed by his size, but you might not just get the volume you would uh, from a Devon Dotson, where that's going to be a little bit more reliable based off his skill set and also the players that are behind him, because to be honest, KU does not have any players behind Devon Dotson. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, and those players will probably be priced fairly similarly on, on daily fantasy sites. And, and you're right, that high floor that Dotson brings. And, and you're right, the, the biggest question mark with Azabuki, you know, certainly efficient, great rebounder, great blocking percentages, um, but it's the minutes. Yeah, he, he very rarely plays 30 minutes. And but, but maybe, you know, being in a little bit better shape this year against some of that high-end talent, maybe he does hit that low 30 mark and, and help boost that ceiling a little bit even even higher. Yeah, and, and again, it's a matter of, I think Bill Self wants to get his best players out there more minutes, and he would love for Yudoka to play more minutes. But yeah, you, you combine foul trouble is one, and he's battled that throughout his career. You yep. talk about the depth that KU has, because, I mean, Sylvia DeSosa and Dave McCormick aren't going anywhere. I mean, if you play Yudoka 30 minutes you're basically uh, don't have many minutes for those other two guys. Plus, like we talked about, Jalen Wilson could potentially be an impact guy at a small ball four position starting right away. And then the third thing you also have to consider with Udoka when it comes to late in games is uh, we're talking about a guy who made 34% of his free throws last year, although in a small sample size because he only played nine games. But uh, this is a guy that a lot of times, if it's a competitive game, let's say it's KU Duke and KU's up by seven late in the game, they can't keep him on the floor. And uh, we know you can't compile stats if you're not on the floor. So uh, for, for Yudoka, the, the minutes are just more of a question mark. And as we talked about uh, the injury there, I mean, that's not a DFS thing. I mean, if he's injured, he's injured and you'll know that before the game, but um, him staying on the floor has been much more of a question mark than a lot of other players that Bill Self has had. So that's going to continue to be something to look at for this year, especially in those early games when you're thinking about starting him. Yeah, for sure. And you talked about uh, Silvio DeSosa and David McCormick and and Self has raved about McCormick this offseason, said he's improved his jump shot, most improved player on the team. Um, who, who do you see uh, starting at power forward this year? Or is it going to be a pretty heavy rotation between those two? Yeah, this is a. Uh, I, 
I don't want to call it a mess because it's good for Kansas to have options. Um, it, it's almost like they sort of need something to happen here to kind of figure out a direction to go in. I think they'll start with Sylvia DeSosa at the four position. Um, they've always really liked what he could provide. And obviously the second half of two years ago, he helped lead KU to the final four. I had a great game against Duke late. And I think they want to try to start with that lineup to get him on the court with Yudoka Azubuki. That presents some natural problems though, because when Silvio was successful his freshman season, Yudoka was out with injury. And so he was able to play at the five position for Kansas and really succeed as a center. And so honestly, McCormick, Sosa, and uh, Yudoka Azubuki, all three of those guys are naturally at the five position. And so yeah. Bill Self is going to kind of have to pigeonhole one of those guys into the four and see who works out best. And I think that's maybe the biggest problem for David McCormick is, can you play a Twin Towers lineup? I mean, can you put David McCormick at 6'10 next to Yudoka Azubuki at seven foot and hope that works out for you defensively? I mean, we know where the game is going in college basketball and especially the NBA with pick and rolls and uh, four men shooting a three and sometimes even five men shooting the three. So how will Kansas counteract that defensively? Bill Self has mentioned a little bit of zone, uh, maybe doing that. But again, that's one of those things. I'll believe it when I see it. Bill Self uh, has talked about zone defense in the past. And uh, usually that is something that does not stick just because it's not something that is in his core that he wants to do. He believes in tough man-to-man defense. So uh, this is something to watch throughout the early course of the season. Maybe an opportunity if you're kind of really plugged into Kansas to see what happens here, because uh, this four position, there's opportunity for minutes between a lot of different players, but uh, it depends how Bill Self wants to handle this defensively. And that depends how well these two players, whether it's Sylvia DeSosa or Dave McCormick, plays next to Yudoka Azubuki. Because outside of that, you're looking at reserve minutes. And if you're looking at reserve minutes between those two guys, uh, you're sort of just kind of making a, a punt play or a dart throw when it comes to DFS, uh, trying to hope you catch lightning in a bottle. So um, that'll be something to follow moving forward. I would expect, though, Sylvia DeSosa to start at the four position alongside Yudoka to start the season he's not really a floor spacer and he struggles to guard on the perimeter on the defensive end so that might be a short-lived thing but I think that's how Kansas wants to start with just to see how that goes yeah I think that's going to be really interesting to watch and then when you throw in I'm assuming Marcus Garrett's going to start at the shooting guard Marcus is elite elite defender uh he cannot shoot and the the move to the international line is not going to help the cause any so, so I worry a little bit about spacing. You know, those teams sagged off of Garrett last year. If you have two big guys down low, what, what does that offense look like? But do you think Garrett's going to start at that shooting guard? And, and, and how do you think that impacts the offense? Yeah, I would fully anticipate that. Uh, and I, again, talking a little bit earlier about Bill Self and sort of his tendencies. I mean, his default option is going to be people that he trusts and people that he trusts defensively. And you mentioned it with Marcus Garrett. He's just so versatile for KU. He can guard the one through five positions. He's a switchable defender. He's smart. Uh, He's intelligent on that end. He can get steals. And uh, offensively, he's a really good driver with his right hand when he can get to his right hand. But as we saw last year, teams started to basically not guard him on the perimeter, and he is not a good three-point shooter. And so you're right when it comes to spacing issues. I mean, we've seen these NBA teams really continue to space things out and really pay players out there that are able to space the floor. Uh, For Kansas, this could be a problem. You know, this floor spacing early in the season, um, if they don't figure this thing out and and find a way to get easy baskets just by moving around the perimeter and passing it, then definitely a Marcus Garrett, Sylvia DeSosa, Yudoka Azubuki lineup could be one that is very crammed on the inside and 
could lead to very inefficient offense. So I, I definitely anticipate Marcus Garrett starting um, at the three spot, as you mentioned, and uh, getting minutes to start off with and really getting minutes throughout the season just because he's a guy that builds self-trust. But how he fits in and how other people fit in around him, I think, remains to be seen just based off of uh, how this team is going to come together. And as we talked about, the lack of outside shooting they have, because that is definitely the number one concern going into this season. Yeah, and one person who, who maybe showed a little bit of signs of being able to shoot the ball was Ochi Baji. And and Agbaji is probably going to be the other starter, I, I think. And he showed some some elite athleticism, showed a ceiling uh, when when they burned the red shirt last year. He really he had some great games. Just you know the normal freshman inconsistency. Um, do you think he'll be the the, the fifth starter there? And, and what do you expect from from Agbaji this year? Yeah, Ochai is sort of a fascinating case. I mean, you start with him; he's a, a great kid. Seems super self-motivated. I wrote a story in the summer about him um, changing up his three-point shot. He's got a quicker release. It's going more over the top of his head, so uh, it's dip- more difficult to to get that shot blocked. And we've seen guys over time, like Frank Mason is an example in the Bill Self era, where a guy had a super slow release his freshman season, uh, didn't shoot very well from three, but really developed over time and got a lot better. And um, if I was looking for early breakout candidates um, for guys that might surprise, I think that's where I would start is, is Ochai Abaji, just because... Um, he's a guy that's on some NBA draft boards, potentially could leave after the season. As you mentioned, um, didn't shoot a great from three last year, 31%. Very difficult. I kept asking him last year. I, I think he was dealing with some sort of ailment, but uh, you know how players are. They don't want to give excuses, and he was not giving excuses last year. But I think some of his struggles down the stretch last year could be health-related and him maybe running into a little bit of a fatigue wall just based off of how many minutes he was playing for the Jayhawks. So. Um, based off of all the things, again, improving his shot in the offseason, teammates talking about it, and also him working on his handle, which uh, teams were kind of forcing him to drive, and he didn't show a great ability to do that last year. Uh, if those things come together for him, uh, it could come together fast, and I think he maybe has the potential to be the most improved player on this year's team, just based off of going from freshman year to sophomore year and um, being the sort of person I know that he is and, and what he's worked on in the summer and, and talking to him about all the you know, the, the shooting coaches he's gone to, what he's done with his release, and um, again, being the sort of person that is uh, self-motivated to get those things done. I would not be surprised at all if the first few games of this year that Ochai Abaji kind of goes back to that early level that we saw with him the first seven or eight games of last year uh, instead of the, team, the player that we saw toward the end of the season that sort of seemed to wear down. So yeah, if you're looking for a guy that potentially could, could surprise in very early season games and maybe get him on the cheap, I think Ochai is, is definitely the guy for you. Yeah, I like that a lot. He's going to be more of that mid-price range player and and certainly has a high ceiling and could really really smash a slate now you know, we, we hit we hit on the starters and we've talked about there's really not uh, much behind uh, Devon Dotson but there's a, a bunch of wings there's a bunch of that kind of that six five uh, small forward type uh, Isaiah Moss from from Iowa who seems to be like that three and D type of guy uh, you got Jalen Wilson that you talked about a highly kind of highly recruited freshman uh, Tristan Unaruna and, and Christian Braun and those guys are all fighting for minutes. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, all of them sort of interesting um, in their own different ways. Uh, Isaiah Moss, well, I guess we'll start with him. Yes, uh, sharpshooter, three-point guy. I think it would be perfect for him if he sort of became like Christian Brown, you know, where if he was a guy that kind of just embraced his role of 3 and D and could be very valuable on this team because – you know, as you mentioned, he's a guy that, you know, can fill it up from the outside 40 plus percent and could be a floor spacer. The problem is, if you look at some of the analytics and defensive numbers there, the defense has sort of been inconsistent uh, on that end. If, if he is able to, you know, give consistent effort there and give what Bill Self wants, then I think there's a role to him playing. But I think the problem is, again, being around the team for Bill Self, he's had a lot of guys in this mold in the past. Uh, you look at Alex Galindo, Brandon Green, Andrew White. 
um, Micah Downs, a, a lot of players that are this sort of wing who can shoot the basketball, but maybe were not the greatest defensively. And over time, I think Bill Self overwhelmingly wants more complete players on the floor. So um, at least at, at KU Media Day, Bill Self talked about Isaiah Moss potentially getting either starting or getting starter-like minutes. That was a comment that very much surprised me. Like I said, I, from being around the program, he seems to me more like a guy that is sort of a weapon rather than a reliable guy. He's also battling a little bit of a hamstring issue early in the season, so he's behind in practices. He's also a graduate transfer, so he's sort of having to play catch-up on the offense. So uh, I would say for me, I'm putting my expectations a little bit lower, especially early on Isaiah Moss, even though he comes in with those great shooting numbers, just because uh, I know how much trust is important for Bill Self, and I think it's going to be very difficult for Isaiah to earn that when he got here after the summer because he was uh, at an internship during the summer and was able to show up on campus any earlier than that, and and like I said, has battled an injury, is still learning the offense, and has to prove himself defensively. And I don't think he's done those things yet. Uh, Christian Brown is a guy, a local kid. Bill Self loves him. I mean, he's one of those players, uh, Brady Morningstar, Tyrell Reed, Jamari Trailer type role that does all the dirty work, makes other players better. And Bill Self loves those type of guys. Now, is he going to fill up a stat sheet? Probably not. So probably not like the DFS type of play that you're looking for to give you a 10 and 10 on a given night. But I think he'll find a role on this year's team. I think the one wild card here is Jalen Wilson. Um, Jalen Wilson is a guy that uh, originally committed to Michigan, decommitted, came back to Kansas. And like I said, I think if KU didn't have David McCormick and didn't have Sylvia DeSosa, boy, Jalen Wilson could fit in a great as a small ball four on this team and space the floor a little bit. He has a little bit of ball handling, a little bit of shooting, could put up big numbers on any given night. It's just sort of a matter of how quickly can he get the offense and uh, will he get the opportunity to play some small ball four for Kansas, which would be kind of the ideal position for him at this point in time. Or will KU kind of keep pushing out there, Sylvie DeSosa and Dave McCormick next to Yudo Gazabuki. So Bill Self has said he still wants to play small ball. Uh, some in the game, even if it's not prime, the KU's primary f- form of uh, going out there. But yeah, uh, this is a guy I think potentially over time could get more and more minutes. And if he proves uh, to be, you know, a Josh Jackson light sort of player where he can be physical and hold his own defensively, but then also give problems on the offensive end, then um, this could be potentially be a guy that gets more and more minutes as the season goes on. Or in certain matchups, when you're facing a team that's playing a four guard lineup, that he could get a, a big share of minutes, 32, 33, 34 minutes. And, and maybe in DFS, that kind of helps you because you can play the matchup and know, hey, this guy potentially is going to be forced into playing because KU is playing a team that fills it up from the outside. Uh, last one, Tristan Inaruna, uh, a, a guy that, again, uh, same sort of thing, can be a small ball four. Maybe not as physical as as Jalen Wilson. I think he'll be good over time, but it seems like he might be a little bit further behind, more of a project. So maybe a guy you're looking at in two to three years to help contribute to Kansas, but maybe not as ready-made as the guy like Jalen Wilson. But I think he's the guy to look to. He might have some opportunity there early in the season where maybe he doesn't get many minutes the previous game because KU plays against a two-big lineup on the other side. But uh, when KU goes up against another four-guard lineup and they're playing in a game where they have to win, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Bill Self give him 30-plus minutes and for him to be maybe a leading scorer for Kansas just because of the offensive ability that he does have. I like that a lot. I think that's really great insight and something to certainly keep an eye on. You know, Overall, when you look at the KU team, but what do you, what do you think are their are their biggest strengths and and, and then I know probably outside shooting is going to be one of them but what are some of the biggest weaknesses that, that you see on this year's team yeah well depth I think is is a great strength you know I it helps your floor if you know that even if you have an injury or two or uh, you know a suspension or whatever that you can go to other guys and I, I talked about K doesn't have many options at point guard but man everywhere else it's it's like okay if you don't have 
um, Ochai, you can go to Isaiah Moss, or you can go to Christian Brown, or you can go um, to Marcus Garrett. And if you don't have Yudoka Azubuki, if he gets injured again, okay, you can go to David McCormick, and you can go to Silvio DeSosa. So KU has a lot of options. I mean, that kind of keeps their floor pretty high, and Bill Self has done a good job over time of really stacking his roster and using all 13 scholarships most years, or 12 when he has uh, when he keeps one in his pocket, uh, and having all those guys be um, something that useful, you know, that he can use over the course of the season, even if, you know, toward the end he gets down to an eight or nine man rotation. So I think depth is really good. I think defensively, this team has potential to be, um, if you're playing two bigs, you could be a great rebounding team and you don't guys, Abuki has a chance. His block numbers have been good, but not great, but he is a, uh, a guy that you think about, you know, when you got a seven foot, 270 got or 270 pound guy at the rim, it changes your shot. You know, so I think this has the potential to be a very good two point defense for the Jayhawks. And they, Usually under Bill Self, they force most of the action on the outside. So you see a team like Villanova or Auburn in the last couple of years, if they get hot from three and shoot a bunch of threes, uh, KU, it's very tough for them to counteract that. But if teams try to force it inside against Kansas, uh, that's usually the matchup they have a lot of success against. I don't think that's going to change this year. And then uh, obviously scoring with angles. Uh, Yudoka Azubuki throughout his career, I mean, what, what do he make on field goals last year? Like 72% or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, he's a ridiculous uh, shooter, 71% last year. I think he was 77% in, uh, the year before that. Uh, I mean, Bill Self and Yudoka Azubuki offensively are a match made in heaven. I mean, they Bill Self knows how to teach getting the ball to guys with an angle where they don't have a defender with them, and uh, Yudoka Azubuki is the perfect guy to clear space, make that happen, and then dunk the basketball. And so um, that that is great for Kansas. I mean, if they get in half-court offense and can get this offense rolling that has worked for Bill Self for so many years, then uh, they're going to be an efficient offense at some point in time. I think the concerns you mentioned, outside shooting, Bill Self will be the first to tell you that. Outside of Isaiah Moss, there's a lot of question marks there. Devon Dotson shot it okay last year, but was a little bit hesitant. And then Ochai Abaji only made 31%. They're going to need him to step into a role. And man, if Marcus Garrett could make a few more, he was at 25% last year, really hesitant to shoot it. Uh, if they could have a couple more guys just hit wide open ones, I think that would go a long way towards helping them. And then, yeah, defensively, I'm, I'm sort of worried about them uh, at the four position. If they're going to play either David McCormick or Sylvia DeSosa there, we know teams love to run ball screens now and get you in a recovery situation. And then we know teams also have a lot of four and five men that can shoot three. So how does KU counteract those sorts of teams that are going to try to expose them on the perimeter? And uh, that's been a question for KU the last few years. And it's definitely a question for this team where it looks like KU is kind of going back to uh, bully ball inside. And if you do that, it, it can work out great offensively, but it does create some con- you know, mismatches and some potential uh, problems on the defensive end. So we'll see how Bill Self counteracts that and what he tries to do to make up for that deficiency. Yeah, our followers are, are sick of me talking about stretch fours against Kansas, but it, I mean, it's it's an Achilles heel of Bill Self's defenses, and, and, and I don't see that changing this year. Uh, no, I, I, again, it depends on what happens. And, you know, what makes Bill Self a great coach is last few years, we've seen him be so versatile, and we've seen him change his offense completely or, or change what they do defensively, uh, you know, to really fit to his pieces. And so, um, I just don't think they have enough time yet to say, okay, no, Sylvia, you're not starting. They've kind of had it in their mind that Sylvia was going to start at the four position for a while now. Um, but over time, could that change? Could Jalen Wilson step into that spot? Could that be Kansas's best lineup with him, you know, physical enough to defend the four on, on the defensive end, but really good and creating a mismatch on the offensive end? I think that's a, definitely a scenario that could happen with Kansas. Uh, like I said, a lot of things get to be determined from now until then. But um, the fact that KU has three guys that really deserve minutes that are 
center type players. I think that definitely adds some confusion into what we're trying to evaluate here and trying to figure out exactly how all this is going to shake out over the course of the season. Yeah, this is fantastic. I really appreciate your insight. And, and this is this has been so valuable um, for our listeners. Uh, we'll end on this and, and I'll put you on the spot here. You know, March is a long, long way away, but give me your final four and your eventual eventual national champion. Oh, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, as we all know, again, this is kind of going back to your worldview of things. Um, tournament's such a crapshoot. And it, it, I am almost disappointed when teams like, you know, the undefeated Kentucky team from a few years ago doesn't win it all because it's just sort of like, that team deserved to win it all. You know, they were the best team in college basketball. But exactly. Right. We know that's not. We know that's not how it works when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, college hoops, just because of the one and done format. Well, I, I guess I'll give you. I mean, this is all totally off the top of my head. So I guess I'll give you a, a couple of expected ones, and I'll give you a couple that maybe you wouldn't expect. I'll go with. Uh, I mean, it's pretty safe to pick Michigan State, I think. I think everybody overwhelmingly is picking them number one. Um, Kentucky is a team I know that Ken Pomeroy's numbers like, and it seems like uh, they're always going to be in the mix, so I'll go with them number two. Let's give you a couple wild cards just because crazy things happen. Uh, I'll go with Florida. Uh, obviously, they got Blackshears coming in, and he could be potentially uh, a first-team All-American. I know I put him on my preseason AP first-team All-American team, and uh, you know we'll see uh, if they can kind of develop into something there. And um, another one that I've kind of always been a – a fan of of afar from afar is uh, Matt Painter and Purdue. I know that's as I mentioned earlier, that's a team that the numbers love and that the uh, analysts don't really at this point. So uh, let's go with those four and give you a couple expected ones and a couple crazy ones and uh, revisit this. And I guess I'm always subject to uh, change my mind if I have to write this in print for something. But as of I don't know mid October, let's go with those four for the final four. Yeah, we won't hold you to those, but those are really good ones. And actually, we we talked about Florida in our in our Vegas futures. Uh, I think they were sitting around twenty to one and just seems like a great value for a team that has a lot of upside yeah i would agree with that and uh you know when it comes to uh under the radar type of teams um you know it seems kind of perfect one with mike white and his team i I feel like he's a pretty good coach and they're sort of similar to me to texas uh when you look at them and also purdue which is teams that really racked up the losses last year but also had one of the toughest strength of schedules and sort of got unlucky in close games. And again, if we're talking about this from a big picture perspective, those are the type of things that usually balance out over time. And so for Florida, you get a little bit better luck this year and uh, continue some of the positive analytic things, uh, numbers, things you're doing underneath the surface, then all of a sudden you could have yourselves the makings of a really good team in this 2019, 2020 season. I love it. Hey, Jesse, really appreciate your time. And and for our followers, again, really encourage you guys uh, go out to the Kansas city star uh, at least look at those quick scouts when, when it, whenever Kansas is on the slate. And you can also follow Jesse at, at Jesse Newell, uh, J-E-S-S-E-N-E-W-E-L-L. And Jesse, really appreciate your time, buddy. Hey, no problem. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 